0: First Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 through 31. Hear God's word. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as He is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present world is passing away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Well, thank you, Bill. Uh, Like Bill said, my name is Paul Brandis, and I have the privilege of serving the Brookside campus of Christ Community as the associate pastor. I just want to add my welcome to to his. I'm so glad that, that you are here today with us. And before uh, we pray for me uh, to have some help as we open God's Word, I first, just right out of the gate, want to say this morning that I feel completely and totally inadequate when it comes to talking about the topic of singleness. Now, just to be clear, I feel inadequate every time (laughs) I hit this, uh, this platform, but I feel it especially so this morning. And the reason that I feel it, especially so this morning, is because I have relatively little personal experience with what it is to be single. Now, of course, there was a time in my life where I wasn't married to Ashley, uh, but we met my freshman year of college, we were engaged a year and a half after that, and we were married a year after that. I was 20 years old, almost 21, when Ashley and I tied the knot. And what that reveals, again, is that I have very little personal experience with being single. And there are a lot of different ways to be single, aren't there? There are singles of every age who have never been married. There are singles who are single because of a divorce. There are singles who are single because their spouse passed away. And here at Brookside, we have all of these groups represented. And I would never presume that my experience, my personal experience with singleness even comes close to matching yours, whatever one of those groups you fall into. Every person who is single has a different story about their singleness, So in no way am I standing here today claiming to have a complete handle on what it means to be single. And I realize that because of that, there's probably a temptation to tune me out. But don't do that. Please stick with me because the good news of preaching Is that it doesn't rely, the foundation for it is not my experience or Bill's experience. If that was the foundation for preaching, then you would be coming every week just to hear our opinions, which would be a complete waste of your time. The foundation for preaching is the Bible, God's Word. And so my hope today is twofold. One, I hope that I will remain faithful to what the Bible says about singleness. And two, I hope that God will apply this truth across all circumstances and experiences represented in this room. Will you pray with me to that end? Dear Father, just like we sung, I need you. We need you. We can't understand your word without you, and so I pray, Lord, as we open it together and and as we examine its pages, I pray you would illuminate our hearts, souls, and minds. May I decrease as you increase, O Father. In your name I pray, amen. Now, I also need to say that this message isn't going to be the answer to all of our questions about singleness. I surely won't be able to say everything that needs to be said about this topic. But hopefully, though, this message can be one small step in the right direction. This message also isn't going to be about abstinence, about how to prepare for marriage, or about how to find a spouse. No, this message is simply about singleness. And furthermore, it's a message about singleness for everyone and that's because we're in the middle of a teaching series in the book of 1 Corinthians. We've entitled this series, A Beautiful Mess. A beautiful mess. 1 Corinthians is a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church that he started in the city of Corinth and that's key. Paul is writing to an entire church, a congregation of people who came from every station of life, those who were married, those who had been divorced, those whose spouse had passed away. those who weren't yet married, those were wondering, those who were wondering if they should get married at all. And right in the middle of this letter to all those different groups of people, in chapter seven, we find Paul's counsel on the topic of singleness. Hear me again, this message of singleness is for everyone whether you are married or single. And Paul's message that we find here is a bit surprising. To understand it properly, we need to remember that the Corinthians kept taking things that were secondary and making them primary. And that's why Paul reminds them in verse 31 of this passage, the present form of this world is passing away. I love the way Eugene Peterson captures this verse in his message paraphrase. He says, the world as we see it is on its way out. The world as we see it is on its way out. Now, this doesn't mean that the world is going to burn up and be destroyed while we take off on a rocket ship to heaven that couldn't be farther from the truth. What it does mean, though, is that we, you and I, are living in the tension of the already, but the not yet. The already. That when Jesus first came to earth some 2,000 years ago, he did bring God's kingdom. The power of God's kingdom is among us now, healing people by making them right with God and with each other. But the not yet meaning that God's kingdom has not yet been fully realized. And until it is, until God's kingdom is fully realized at Jesus' second coming, we still, you and I, every day, experience the decay, the disease, and the death of this world. Now, as Christians, we have the guarantee of a future joy and hope that will be fully realized in God's kingdom. And that mind-blowing truth should shape and transform everything about the way that we live in the here and now. The world as we see it is on its way out. Which means that we should invest on the, in the kingdom that's on its way in. Here in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul connects this idea, this idea of the kingdom or the world as we see it being on its way out. He connects it singleness. Because the world as we see it is on its way out, one, singleness is good. Not better, not worse. Two, singleness is a gift, but not in the way that you think. And three, singleness is possible because of God's family. And just so you know, we're going to spend the bulk of our time on this first point today. The singleness is good, not better, not worse. Let's dive in. This, this point here, singleness is good, not better, not worse, is actually something that Paul states very plainly in chapter 7. Turn with me there, actually, to the beginning of the chapter, to the beginning of the chapter, to verse 8. Here Paul writes, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. According to Paul, stated plainly here, singleness is good. But I would submit that in evangelical churches like ours, almost no one agrees with this statement. The statistics bear this out. 46% of adult Americans, almost half of adult Americans are single. But in churches like ours, 25% of evangelicals over the age of 18 are single. In other words, there aren't that many single Christian adults that are in our churches. Churches like ours, evangelical churches. The fact of the matter is that churches like ours have comparatively few single adults in their congregations to other denominations, to other churches. And while the reasons for this are many, I think actually that a large part of the problem is that in too many cases, churches like ours have overemphasized marriage and the nuclear family. Now, I'm not saying that those things aren't important. Don't hear me say that this morning. But I do think, however, that we've sat a little bit too hard on that side of the seesaw. And I understand why. You know, for a long time in the history of the church, the single life, celibacy, was actually held up as the higher and holier calling than marriage. And in fact, this is still the case today in the Catholic Church. So that's one reason I think why churches like ours have sat too hard on, the side, on that side of the seesaw. Furthermore, today our culture, by and large, devalues and attacks the nuclear family. And so in response to these two things, churches like ours began to fight for the family, and as they should have. But as often happens, the pendulum has swung a bit too far too far in the opposite direction, and we've actually created churches where marriage and the nuclear family are idols. That's a bold statement, I know. But remember what the definition is for idolatry. It's the taking of a good thing and making it into the ultimate thing. The taking of a good thing and making it into an ultimate thing. Doesn't that sound like, if we're honest, doesn't that sound like something that our churches have done with marriage and with the family? We've taken a very good thing and we've made it the ultimate. As a result, singles often feel that there isn't a space for them in our churches. But remember, Paul says that singleness is good, it's not a lesser status. And we have to, this morning, understand how shocking of a statement this would have been for Paul to make. As a Jewish male, marriage was practically obligation. In the Old Testament, singleness was viewed as a curse. So what changed for Paul? Well, let's look back at the passage, uh, this time near the end, starting in verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, which just means... uh, women who are engaged to be married. He writes, I have no command from the Lord, which just means that Jesus didn't give the final word on this. Paul continues, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Here in these verses, Paul names a present distress. We don't know exactly what this refers to, but probably it was a temporary crisis that the Corinthians were experiencing. Many scholars think that Paul might be referring to a famine that was happening in Corinth around the time that he wrote this letter. So part of Paul's pastoral counsel here seems to be that singleness is especially good in times of social upheaval. Or in other words, there is a goodness to singleness in times of intense suffering. We don't talk about suffering much in our churches today. And that's a mistake because in the Bible, the assumption, the assumption, not the exception, the assumption of the Christian life is one of suffering and hardship. Jesus said it most succinctly in John 16, to his disciples. He told them, in this world, you will have trouble. In, in Paul's day, the church had terrible trouble. And so Paul is saying something like this, if you follow Jesus, you are going to suffer. And if you get married, your suffering will be multiplied to your spouse and to your children. And many of you know that here at Christ Community, we've been praying regularly and fervently for Farshid. He's an Iranian pastor who is in prison and has been for some time. He's married with two kids, and I have no doubt that his deep concern for his wife and children has multiplied his pain and suffering while he is in prison. The Apostle Paul knew people like Farshid, which is why he writes in verse 28 of our passage, those who marry will have worldly troubles and I would spare you that. Paul isn't saying that marriage is bad, only that marriage is hard for the Christian because Jesus will call you to suffer and perhaps suffer like our brother Farshid. So then the flip side to this argument is that singleness can be good in times of intense suffering and social upheaval because the suffering isn't multiplied to a spouse or to children. Now, this doesn't mean that being single is easy or that it doesn't involve suffering. We can't go there, right? Because remember, Paul and Jesus were both single, and both of their lives were marked with incredible suffering, Indeed, people who are single face many unique hardships and unique challenges that those of us who are married know nothing about. Uh, Being single is hard when you desire a spouse but can't seem to find one. It's hard when you experience same-sex attraction but believe that the Bible teaches that homosexual practice is sinful. It's hard when you still have sexual desires that don't go away just because you aren't married. It's hard when you long for biological children but you can't have any. It's hard when you feel like you don't fit anywhere and it's hard when you are single because a beloved spouse has passed away. Paul isn't saying that the single life is perfect all the time or easy all the time. He would never say that. And in addition, he also wouldn't say that the circumstances that brought about your singleness are good. We have to see that distinction. He wouldn't say that your divorce was good or that it is good that you haven't found a spouse yet. And he certainly wouldn't say that the death of your spouse was a good. Absolutely not. Paul's powerful point is that in spite of those trying and difficult circumstances, your singleness is still good. He continues to make that point in verses 29 through 31 of our passage, and they read this. This is what I mean, brothers and sisters. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Paul's words here are difficult. This is a hard, these are hard verses. What is he saying? Well, he isn't literally telling husbands to abandon their wives or condemning the purchasing of any goods. Rather, these verses are a rhetorically rich way, a rhetorically rich way of communicating what he wrote to the church in Rome In Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world. That's what verses 29 to 31 are all about. Do not be conformed to this world. The point of those verses is that we should not be dominated by any of the things that Paul lists. Marriage, grief, material goods, and so on. These things should not dictate our existence. What should dictate our existence? Jesus and His kingdom. That is what is main. That is what is primary. That is what is ultimate. Jesus and His kingdom. And this has major implications for both singleness and marriage because it means that both marriage and singleness are good stations for neither one of them is primary. Neither one of them is ultimate. God's kingdom is ultimate. And in God's kingdom, there's only one thing, only one thing that can give you a rich, a full, and a deep life. It's not romance. It's not marriage. It's not family. Those are good things, but they are not the ultimate thing. Jesus is the only ultimate for any of us. And what that means is that in God's kingdom, you can have Jesus and nothing else and still have all you need. So Paul is saying that one of the reasons that singleness is good is because in a unique way, it forces dependence on Jesus and his kingdom. Now, of course, as a married person, I need to depend on Jesus and his kingdom too. I'm not off the hook just because I'm married. But for me, see, there exists the possibility that I would wrongly depend on Ashley or my family for something that she could never give me. Bill talked about this two weeks ago in in our sermon on marriage. As married people, when we start depending on our spouses, on our marriages, and on our families in in ways that we shouldn't, then we're putting a burden on them that will ultimately crush them and thereby crush us. Paige Benton is a single Christian who has written on this, and I think she captures the point well. She writes, I am not single because I am too spiritually unstable to possibly deserve a husband, nor because I am too spiritually mature to possibly need one. I am single because God is so abundantly good to me, because this is his best for me. It is a cosmic impossibility that anything could be better for me right now than being single." But I want to be married. I pray to that end every day. And I may meet someone and walk down the aisle in the next couple of years because God is so good to me. Or I may never have another date and die single at the ripe age of 93 because God is so good to me. Not my will, but His be done. Singleness is good. And if you're here this morning and are single, I want you to hear that. You may not believe me and I wouldn't blame you. But hear me say that the Bible does not teach that you are less than or that you haven't arrived yet. No, the Bible teaches that your singleness is a good thing. Which leads to our second point. Singleness is a gift but not in the way that you think. Now, many of you who are single this morning probably saw this and recoiled a little bit. You may have even thrown up in your mouth. Perhaps you had a thought in line with the title of this book. If singleness is a gift, I think I have a slide for this. If singleness is a gift, what's the return policy? (laughs) If it's a gift, I want to give it back. How can I return it? And I need to confess that for a long time, the way I thought about the gift of singleness was incorrect. I need to confess that this morning because I thought that if someone had the gift of singleness, then they had no sexual desires or they had no longing for romance or marriage. Somehow God had given them sort of this supernatural ability to not desire any of those things. And I thought incorrectly about this for a long time. And I think the reason, one of the reasons why I thought incorrectly is because I was conflating the gift of singleness with the idea of a calling to lifelong singleness. I was conflating those two things. You know, author Lauren Winner, she's so helpful here. She writes, perhaps we ought not fixate on the call to lifelong singleness. Some people, she writes, of course, are called to lifelong singleness, but more of us are called called to singleness for a spell. Our task is to discern a call to singleness for right now, and that's actually not so difficult. If you are single right now, then you are called right now to be single. Called to live a single life as robustly and gospel conformingly as you possibly can. That quote tied in perfectly with a recent conversation that I had with a friend of mine, a single friend of mine. He stated it simply He said, If you are single, then you have the gift of singleness. The question is only a matter of whether or not you will exchange it for the gift of marriage. Whether or not you will exchange it for the gift of marriage. This hit me profoundly and it began to reshape my thinking. You know, I think that the argument or this thought accords well with Paul's broader point in his argument in 1 Corinthians 7. Look back with me again to the beginning of the chapter, 1 Corinthians 7 7. And in 7 7, Paul writes this He says, I wish that all were as myself am, which is to say, single. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So, again, plainly here in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is saying that singleness is a gift. That language of one of one kind and one of another refers to singleness and marriage. Both of them are gifts, both of them are gifts. Now, singleness is a gift, but not in the way that you think, often because we think about gifts wrongly. You know, gifts for us are presents, right? Things that we receive. We get gifts on our birthdays, we get gifts at Christmas, and they're always in the form of presents that other people are giving to us. But Paul uses the word gift every single time he uses it in his uh, letters. It is not in that way. It's actually in the exact opposite way. When Paul speaks of gifts, what it actually is, is something that God has given to you for the benefit and good of other people. It's for the good and the benefit of other people. And so the gift of marriage that you have been given for those of you who have married, that's not for you. That's for the good of other people. And the gift of singleness, that's not for you. It's for the good of other people. And I I think, in fact, I know that the gift of singleness is a unique gift to the church in a few ways. I want to point out three of them this morning. Three ways that singleness and single people that are here today are a unique gift to the church. First, singleness strategically positions you for broad gospel ministry. Singleness strategically positions you for broad gospel ministry. Paul makes this point In our passage in verses 32 through 35, you can flip back there. I know I have you guys flipping back and forth. This is what he writes. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about, uh, the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the married or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order, and this is key here, to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul sounds like he may be down on marriage in these verses, but he's not. His point is that marriage necessarily focuses one's energy and attention onto a smaller group of people, your spouse and your family. Your author and pastor, Tim Keller, succinctly captures the tension of these verses well. He writes, Family life necessarily absorbs those of us who are married and directs large amounts of our time and attention onto a small number of people. Single life can free you to serve and minister to more people. Now, this doesn't mean that we should sign single people up to serve in every area of the church at all times on every day of the week just because they have so much free time, because they don't have a nuclear family. It doesn't mean that. What it does mean is that singles are strategically positioned for broad gospel ministry to all sorts of different people. And that's a good thing and it's a unique way that singles are a gift to the church. Second, singleness calls all of us to true friendship. Singleness calls all of us to true friendship. In his book, Bowling Alone, Robert Putnam points out that we live in a culture that has fewer and fewer friendships. He shows this uh, over a period of time where The percentage of American bowlers, people that went bowling, increased by 10%, but the percentage of people that did it in leagues decreased by 40%. In other words, we're still bowling, and we're in fact bowling even more. We're just doing it alone. And too often, we're okay with that. Our culture doesn't fight hard enough for friendships and community. And too often, that's true in the church as well. For example, this week I was speaking to another single Christian friend of mine, and she was relaying that her community group is canceled occasionally because families have events that come up for their children. Her follow up point here was really piercing. She said, I really need that time. I need that community. I need that friendship. Now, married people need that community and friendship too, but there is something unique about the single person's need for that community and friendship. As a married person, I don't feel the loss of community like she does when my community group is canceled. You know, it's interesting because as a married person, I don't think think that I'm starved for friendship because my loneliness and isolation are well hidden by my family around me. But I am starved for community because we all are starved for community. One writer quipped, to be human is to be lonely. Isn't that true? Because of that reality, we all desperately need true community and true friendship. And single people, those of you that are here today that don't have a nuclear family to meet some of those needs, they remind us of that. You remind us of that. And in fact, not only do you remind us of that, but I want to say that you being here calls us into that. And your presence is a reminder that all of us need to pursue true friendship. And that is a unique and powerful gift to the church. A unique and powerful gift. Third, singles or singleness reminds us that we are all still waiting. We are all still waiting. Remember, the world as we see it is on its way out. But too often I live as if this world is all there is. You know, I think that my my wife, my soon to be born child or my job, I think that these things can give me all that I am longing and waiting for. But they can't. And they weren't meant to. They are good things, but I'm still waiting. Because there is not a human being on earth who can enter into our cores and heal us or that can give us the meaning and value that we all long for. Not my wife, not my children. Nobody can enter into that core except for Jesus. So singles remind us that we are still waiting Author Rodney Clapp captures this point powerfully. He writes, The married Christian ultimately should trust that his or her survival is guaranteed in the resurrection. The single Christian ultimately must trust in the resurrection. The married, after all, can fall back wrongly on the passage of the family name to children and on being remembered by children. But singles mount the high wire of faith without the net of children and their memory. If singles live on, it will be because there is a resurrection. And if they are remembered, they will be remembered by the family called church. The family called church. That's our third and final point this morning. Singleness is possible because of God's family. Now, by possible... I don't want to set the bar low, right? I mean, after all, I've spent this entire message trying to raise the bar and show that God's word actually values singleness and single people. So I don't want to set the bar low. I don't mean possible in the sense of you can do it, you can make it, like hang on and maybe you'll get married, it's possible. No, I don't mean that. What I do mean by it's possible is that singleness is an equally viable option because of God's family. It's an equally viable option to marriage because there is a capital F family that is above every other family. There is a family called church. So singleness is possible because of God's family. In another letter, Paul pens an incredible passage about God's family. In Ephesians 2, 19, he writes this, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household or family of God. No longer strangers, but family. At Christ's Community, we aim for this type of of community, and we always have from the very beginning. It's why our mission statement begins the way it does. We seek to be a caring family of multiplying disciples, influencing our community and world for Jesus Christ. That's not a reference to the nuclear family. That is a reference to the capital F family, God's church. For single people here today who have struggled, to fit into this family, please forgive those of us who are married, who are married with families of our own. Forgive us for when we have treated you like second-class citizens. Forgive us for the deferential language that we have used. Forgive us for not including you more in our social circles and inviting you into our homes and into our family lives. Forgive us. Because the truth is, we can't really be God's true family without you. We can. Eve Tushnet, herself single and same-sex attracted, she makes this point. She writes, The rewards of friendship that becomes kinship accrue for single people. It's important for single people, but also for their married friends and the rewards of love spill beyond the adult friends themselves as single people be friends, as a single person befriends and becomes part of an entire family. Knitting single people more closely into families is one of the biggest things the Christian church can do to change the culture. That's a bold statement, but I agree with her. I think she's right. The best way for non-Christians who see our church to long for Jesus is for us to actually become the capital F family of God, a loving and committed family. But how do we do that? Well, as you can imagine and as you have probably experienced, it's not easy. There's no simple formula. It takes a lot of hard work Because we all know that, right? Whether you're single or married, family is hard. If you're single, you have cousins, you have brothers, you have sisters, you have parents, right? Family is hard. But it's also wonderful. And so if we're truly going to become the capital F family of God, we have to fight for that. We have to work towards it. We have to start somewhere. And here at Christ Community, we think the best place to start is programmed. What I mean by programmed is we think the best place for you to start is in a community group. As Bill mentioned, community groups are smaller groups of individuals that meet together weekly. And in that space where the the size of the church shrinks down, we desire that you pray with one another, you encourage one another, you read the Bible together, you eat together, you laugh together, you cry together, you mourn together, you celebrate together. In other words, in that space, we desire that you will become A family. A family. But here's the deal, right? I mean, we all know that community groups are not enough. As a church, we think community groups are the first step into deeper community, but it's only the first step on the long journey to actually being God's family. It can't be the only step. No, it's because the unprogrammed time with one another is where the rubber really hits the road. The unprogrammed time with one another. So let me give you two quick thoughts, just two quick thoughts about how to pursue unprogrammed family and friendship here in this church. First, apologize and forgive a lot. Have you ever noticed that people are sort of the worst? (laughs) I mean, they can be really great too, but they can also be the worst, and we're all people. (laughs) Which means that as we pursue this hard work of becoming the family of God, then we're going to have to apologize for ourselves and forgive others over and over and over again. You know, apologizing and forgiving, those are indicators of a covenant relationship, a covenant relationship. In a covenant relationship, the relationship is more important than my needs. The relationship is more important than my needs. Listen to what Paige Benton says about covenant relationships. The only time folks talk about human covenants is in premarital counseling. How anemic. If our God is a covenantal God, then all our relationships are covenantal. The gospel is not about how much I love God. I typically love him very little it is about how much God loves me. My relationships are not about how much friends should love me. They are about how much I get to love them. No single should ever expect relational impoverishment by virtue of being single. We should covenant to love people, to initiate, to serve, to commit. And I would add, of course, that married people need to covenant to love people as well, to initiate, to serve, to commit, to apologize, and to forgive. Finally, to truly become the family of God, we're going to have to put it on the calendar. We're going to have to start to orient our lives around this. Instead of church and instead of the family of God being a slice of the pie, it's going to have to sit right in the middle. Wes Hill, who we've quoted a lot in the past few weeks, he points out that as a single guy, his post-college friendships with others have always involved frequent and planned interactions. You unprogrammed doesn't mean unplanned. The only way that we're going to become a family is to plan for it. It's not going to just happen. We need to prioritize it and put it on the calendar, and this means that we all should invite one another into our homes, whether we are married or single. Single people, invite families into your homes. And married folks, invite singles into your home. This has to be a two-way street. And there's something very powerful because as Christians, when we do invite one another into our homes, we do it in a unique way. Because we're not just inviting guests, we're inviting family. So let me ask you this morning, do you view the other members of this church as your family? As your brothers and as your sisters, as your aunts, as your uncles, as your mothers, as your fathers? Do you? Because I think that you should. And for the sake of the wonderful and amazing single people that are here in our midst, I think that we all must think that way and march towards that, as difficult as it is. Remember, there is a new kingdom breaking in. The world as we see it is on its way out. And that means that we need single people Singleness is good, it's a gift, and it's possible because of God's family. This new kingdom has a perfect king, Jesus. And he always has another seat at his table. Would you pray with me? Dear Father in heaven, dear Father in heaven, thank you for my brothers and sisters, single and married. I pray for especially the single people this morning, Lord. However they got to that place, I just pray for them, Lord. They experience life and have struggles in ways that I could never even imagine. And I feel for them, Lord. And I've felt for them all week preparing this. And I just want to pray for them right now, Lord. Meet them where they're at. Satisfy them and be all that they need, Lord. Help us, as the, as the nuclear families, help us, those that are married, love them well and serve them well and graft them into this great, beautiful, messy thing that you
0: call the church, your family. Thank you. Amen.